It's time for more of the World War II Project. This is the AmeriChicks with your host, Kim Munson. Hey, welcome to the AmeriChicks World War II Project with Kim Munson. Be sure and check out my website, AmeriChicks.com. All these shows are archived there. And I am the AmeriChicks on Facebook and Twitter as well, so be sure and like and follow me. Uh, This whole show precipitated from a trip that I took with uh, the Denver Police Activities League that took uh, four World War II veterans back to Normandy for the D-Day celebration back in 2016. Upon returning to America, we realized that we need to capture these stories, so we have had the great honor to interview over 100 World War II veterans, and I am thrilled to have on the line with me John Schaffner. John, how are you doing today? Yeah, hitting on all eight. Thank you. Well, I'm glad to hear that. That's for sure. And uh, John, you are a World War II veteran and you served in the 106th Infantry Division, right? That's correct. Yes. Okay. Can you break that down a little bit more for us? What makes up an infantry division? Sure. An infantry division uh, comprised of uh, about 14,000 men. Uh, It's divided up into three infantry regiments, which are supported by four artillery battalions, and of course is comprised with uh, engineers, medics, uh, mechanics, other support people. So that's uh, that's the general makeup of an infantry division. Okay. And you served in the European Theater. And just so all of you listeners know, you can actually go to indianamilitary.org. And yes. find John's complete story. This is really, really fascinating. It's it's extensive. So go to indianamilitary.org. And then where you see over, it says, uh, let's see, bios and, and all that kind of information. Click on that, and then all these guys' stories come up, and you'll see John's story there, and you can click on that. So, again, that's indianamilitary.org. So let's jump in here. Uh, John, where were you when you heard that World War, or excuse me, that Pearl Harbor had been bombed? Oh, I was in a movie, as a matter of fact, that day. And uh, they stopped the movie, and uh, the theater manager came out on the stage and announced that uh, Pearl Harbor had been bombed, and uh, it certainly looked like we were going to be officially in the war. Were you surprised? Um, I, I suppose so. Okay. <laughs> I suppose I was surprised. Uh, you know, I was still in high school, so uh, I wasn't aware, really, of what the political situation was in the world, except for what we saw in the newspaper and maybe on newsreels in a movie. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, uh, it wasn't until Pearl Harbor hit us that everybody realized that... Uh, their lives were going to be changed. Well, that that's for sure. And yours was because you graduated from high school and then you were drafted, right? Yes. Yeah, I registered. I was turned 18 in my senior year. And I, of course, registered for the draft. And uh, I was out. I graduated. I was out two weeks and then in uniform. Wow. That's uh, pretty astonishing. And so when you were drafted, uh, did you indicate which branch of the service you'd like to serve in? <laughs> it's kind of funny. Uh, sure. Uh, the recruiter said, um, you know, what branch of the service would you like? I said, uh, well, I've liked airplanes all my life. I, I'd, I'd like to get in the Air Force. And uh, he looked. 
looks at me and he says, oh, you're wearing glasses, you can't go into the Air Force. And I says, well, a lot of my friends are in the Navy. And he says, stop, stop, he says, uh, uh, Navy's full. Um, I have to put you in the Army. But uh, since you wear glasses, I'm going to stamp your papers. Limited service, which he did. So there I had stood there with my papers that said limited service. I thought, hmm. What does this mean? I'll probably shuffle in papers at Fort Meade the rest of the time. Well, of course I wasn't. Uh, there was a shortage of infantry, and, and they, all of us you know, were, went in the infantry at that time. No choice. So you ended up in the 106th Infantry Division then at that time? Yes, yes, we went through, you know, our basic indoctrination at Fort Meade, which was only about a couple days, and then uh, a whole train load of us uh, mounted up and wound up in uh, Fort Jackson, South Carolina, where in, in March of 1943, the division was activated. Okay, and tell us, uh, while you were at uh, Fort Jackson in S- South Carolina, about your carbine. Oh, we were issued a carbine. Uh, the um, artillery, uh, you know, had had a lot of work to do with their hands, you might say. And uh, an M1 rifle was uh, considerably heavier and, and uh, um, would be in the way of, uh, of what we were doing. Uh, there were cannoneers that had to hop around the howitzer all the time handling heavy ammunition and you know rifles like the M1 uh, were not suitable so the infantry guys were issued the M1 and of course other rifles BAR Thompson and so on but the uh, uh, artillery were, were all issued the smaller carbine it was 30 caliber and held a magazine held 15 rounds uh, but it uh, didn't have quite the range or accuracy of, of the M1 rifle, but it was adequate. Okay. And one of the I never thing- had any problems with mine. Well, and, and, John, one of the things I found interesting in your biography is that you mentioned that these carbines were stamped with different manufacturing companies that you would never dream were in the uh, uh, firearms business. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. you know... Uh, when we got into the war, hammer and tongs, uh, all the manufacturing industry that was suitable was put to work making uh, implements of war. And our carbines uh, were, were made by Rockola Jukebox Company, uh, Wurlitzer, Singer Sewing Machine. Um, I can't think of all the yeah, names. It's, it's astounding, you know, just how everyone came together to support this war effort. Oh, uh, exactly, yeah. exactly. Any machine shop near that was uh, able to uh, manufacture what was needed uh, was uh, given a defense contract. So, uh, you know, we were turning out stuff uh, almost impossible to think about. Liberty ships were being launched at the rate of one a day near the end of the war. One a day, a ship. That is astounding. It was all production line stuff, modular construction. All the pieces came together at the shipyard, and the welders went to work putting it together. Wow. It is astounding. 
Um, it was. Let, let's talk it a little was. bit more about training, though. Uh, you said, uh, tell us about the war games that uh, your battalion, um, you know, took part in as, as training. Yes, we started out, you know, um, one, two, three, four, drilling uh, for several weeks and uh, learning our uh, uh, the points of what our specialty was. And, and then the battery commander one day came out and said, uh, well, fellas, we're going out into the field for a week. And we thought, okay, we're in South Carolina. Weather's not too bad. Won't be so hard. So we went out in the field for a week, and then we came back in and cleaned everything up, and then went back out in the field for three weeks, uh, and then for a month. Well, come uh, January, around the first of the year, we were transferred into the Tennessee Maneuver Area, which is up in the hills of Tennessee, and there's no shelter there. And we performed maneuvers for January, February, and March uh, out in the field the whole time. Well, it was important training, though, to prepare you for what was coming up then, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And so then from the Tennessee field maneuvers, you went to Camp Atterbury in Indiana. Tell us just a little bit about that. Yes, Camp Atterbury. Uh, we wound up there around the, uh, the 1st of March. No, near the end of March, I guess it was. Anyway, um, I, on the way, we were uh, we had vehicles. You know, we all drove jeeps and trucks. And on the way, the weather got better. And I thought, man, time we get to Indiana, um, all I could think of was the Stephen Foster songs. You know, I thought mm-hmm. Indiana's going to be neat. When we pulled into Camp Atterbury, the temperature was just above freezing, and the wind was blowing hard enough to blow your mustache off. Uh-oh, we're in for more more bad weather. And it was, but it did get better. And uh, we, uh, we, you know, trained further until uh, June. And then uh, when D-Day happened, um, Apparently, the uh, Eisenhower staff and whoever was running the war decided that we were going to take a lot of casualties during the invasion. So uh, they reached out for trained troops for replacements, uh, and they uh, uh, transferred about half of our division to replacement depots in Europe and uh, then filled in those slots with uh, troops that uh, they thought were no longer necessary, like um, uh, coast artillery was the the threat of invasion had, you know, not materialized. Um, the, The Air Force at that time had enough pilots in the pipeline, so anybody that was training to be a pilot was transferred out into the infantry. So the division was half trained and half untrained. Uh, But by the time we got to uh, Europe um, around the 1st of December, everybody was pretty much on board, I think, and we were ready to go. Okay. So you've uh, crossed the the ocean, and and you're in England now. Uh, So what happens after that, John Schaffner? 
well, when we got to England, we were placed in a, in a camp <clears throat> um, near uh, the town of Gloucester. Uh, they call it call it the Gloucestershire Barracks, and it apparently had been a part of the British Army. Uh, they were they were typical small one-story buildings that were uh, furnished with double-decker bunks, but um, but no no plumbing, just a little potbelly stove at the end of the end of the big room, and uh, the what they called the ablutions was. A building at the end of the, uh, I'll call it the, the street, not much of a street, but anyway, it was a, a, a building dedicated to uh, uh, showers and toilets. And um, if you didn't get in there during daylight, you were in trouble because uh, every night was foggy and rainy, and uh, it was blackout conditions. So uh, there was no lights anywhere. And when you walked out of the, the door, if you didn't know how to get to where you were going, you were in big trouble because you really couldn't see your hand in front of your face. It's wow. that dark. Wow. Um, first time I ever saw it that dark. <laughs> there was no sky for, skylight. No, you know, nothing penetrated that fog from the sky. And uh, there was no artificial light, so okay. there was just no light at all. Wow. Anyway, that, you know, we can, we can yeah. handle that. Yeah. Now, we're talking, is this December of 44 now? 44. Okay. And so you're in England, and what happens after that, John Shafter? Well, about December the 6th, um, we were alerted to move. And uh, all of the equipment that we needed had been with had been drawn from the uh, from the dumps. That is, uh, vehicles, the howitzers, uh, all the heavy stuff had preceded us there. So we with, we, we you know drew our equipment and uh, drove to the town of Weymouth, which is down on the coast, and it was one of the ports that. The British were using to transfer troops from England across the Channel. So we crossed the Channel around the, uh, between, I guess, between the first and the fifth of December, <clears throat> and then uh, the, the ship uh, just circled around in the Channel for a, a, about a day and a half, maybe two, bouncing up and down. This was an LST. And when it came our time to uh, go up the Seine River, uh, the ship got in line, and it was one ship after the other going up the Seine River. Uh, and they were close enough to where you could almost throw a baseball from one to the other, wow. um, like circus elephants, holding, one holding the tail of the one in front. And uh, we um, went all the way to Rouen on the Seine River and beached the LSTs and drove off. And uh, the division assembled in a huge field somewhere uh, just north of uh, the town. And when everybody was there, we formed up a convoy and began driving east. Um, went up through France, uh, through Belgium, 
and uh, 99% of us had no idea where we were going. And we wound up uh, just inside the German border uh, near a place called Hertzpen. And this was uh, a place where the 2nd Division had been in position for quite a long time and was considered uh, a rest area. However, <laughs> um, nothing was happening there yet. And uh, the uh, the line there, uh, call it the line, um, kind of paralleled the German border from uh, Aachen north in the north down to uh, Switzerland in the south, and it's about three divisions were were uh, in the front. Uh, 99th in the north, 106th in the middle, and 28th in the south. Okay, hey John, uh, let's let's the 99th go. 99th and 106th were both green divisions. Never heard a, fire, a shot. <laughs> never heard a shot fired in anger. The 28th had been moved in there from the battle at, at Hurricane Forest, and it was pretty beat up. So the three divisions were at a front of about 26 miles. Hey, John, uh, I tell you what, let's uh, go to break and let's continue I, yeah, with this I story. Back up anyway. Okay, sounds great. We're going to go to break. Before we do that, though, March Madness is underway and Hooters Restaurants is my sports headquarters. The Nuggets are bringing it on. The Avs Major League Baseball is, is here. And Hooters is the place to watch all the games. Wednesday is Wing Day. All the wings you can eat for fourteen ninety nine, and try their new smoked wings. They are delectable and only half the calories. And Hooters wings can fly. You can actually have them delivered right to your front doorstep when I have the girls over on Wednesday nights. I order Hooters new smoked wings that are delicious and half the calories. So order your Hooters wings to go or have them delivered right to your front door. More information, visit HootersColorado.com. That's HootersColorado.com. Let them know that you know the Americhicks. This is Kim Munson with the World War II Project. We're talking with World War II veteran John Shafter. We will be right back. Welcome back to the AmeriChicks World War II Project with Kim Munson. Be sure and check out my website, AmeriChicks.com, and uh, check out my Facebook. I'm AmeriChicks, as well as that's where I am on Twitter also. Uh, Talking with World War II veteran John Schaffner with the 106th Infantry Division. Uh, We're talking about his experience in the European theater in, uh, in World War II. So, John, it is such an honor to get to talk with you. Well, thank you. I um, started to talk about the uh, the front that we were uh, assigned to defend, and it was about a 65-mile-long stretch that was divided up with, between the three divisions. Normally, a, an infantry division would have four miles, maybe maximum five miles up front, and uh, wound up with these three divisions having about 20 miles each wow. to defend. Uh, very thin, very thin. And what made it even worse was that the Germans uh, had been there. Uh, they, they knew where we were, and they knew that uh, we didn't have the facility to defend if they attacked. Of course, we being enlisted men uh, with a rifle and a shovel, we we didn't know anything. Uh, the word never seems to get down to that level. 
probably good. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, we uh, we had two green divisions and one beat-up division, and none of us were able to uh, mount a uh, an effective defensive line. So on December 16th, when the Germans attacked, um, it was not a difficult thing for them to uh, mass their troops in front of uh, us and uh, surround uh, our uh, positions, which were just thinly defended. So they came through us like uh, like water through a sieve, you might say. Wow. And uh, the 106 being right in the center took the brunt of the attack. Uh, a lot of their... Uh, Positions were surrounded by the Germans, and um, they could only hold out as long as they had ammunition and food, and uh, that ran out in about two days. So uh, essentially two regiments of the 106th were surrendered, and that amounted to about 6,000 that were made prisoners. There's about 500 and some were killed during the battle. Um, don't have really accurate numbers, so you have to excuse me for that. Every, it seems like every time you pick up a different book, cause it's, uh, the stati- statistics are different anyway. But anyway, as, as I can, close as I can tell you, uh, it was a chaotic experience. Uh, being in the artillery, we were behind the infantry line, and I kind of figured we were relatively safe. But then the infantry line collapsed, and uh, that left the uh, the artillery next in line, and we had to uh, scramble. So the, uh, what happened exactly then, John? The, the, the 589th Field Artillery Battalion uh, was made up of three firing batteries, A, B, and C, uh, headquarters battery, and uh, when the Germans came to in our, into our position, um, they surrounded C battery and uh, captured almost all those people intact. Um, there were there were some casualties. The battery commander was killed and several of the enlisted men before they surrendered. But then A and B batteries were able to extricate their uh, uh, howitzers and uh, vehicles and move back uh, several miles. And uh, before before these two uh, batteries could get set up, uh, the Germans were on us again, and uh, they had to move again. And when that happened. Um, we lost all the bat- all the howitzers from uh, B battery, and only three howitzers from A battery got on the road. We wound up uh, with about 125 or 30 men and three howitzers uh, out of about 500 men and 12 howitzers at that point. Um, now, time marches on. Uh, that was the 16th to the 17th of December. The 18th of December, we found ourselves driving around behind the lines 
um, with, with no communications with any higher command. Uh, but of course, sooner or later, somebody finds out where you are, and they say, uh, you know, go here and do that. And uh, what happened was the uh, whoever made the you know sent the orders down told our uh, our commander to uh, split up his forces, take the weapons, and go to uh, this place uh, where there's a crossroads and defend the crossroads. And the other uh, half of the troops were to uh, go to some area further back where they would be in reserve. Uh, well, I, I, I was a lucky one. I happened to be in the group that went to uh, defend the crossroads. Um, and here, that doesn't sound lucky. It sounds uh, That sounds like the more dangerous thing. It turned out to be uh, what was later written up as uh, an Alamo defense. If I had heard anybody say Alamo at that time, I don't know what I've done. But anyway, uh, we we found ourselves at this crossroads that later on I found out it, it ran between Bastogne and Liège. And it was the main road that the Germans had to acquire to continue their advance. Anyway, uh, I don't think any of us you know, realized the precarious position we were in. But we set up with the three howitzers defending three of the, the, the roads to this place that was known as Brac de Fratur, uh later to be called Park, Parker's Crossroads. Uh, and that was for Major Arthur Parker, who was our commander. At the time, we had gone through a couple commanders. Uh, anyway, we, we set up there on the 17th, 18th, on the 19th of December. The Germans were held up down at Bastogne, but finally they uh, decided to bypass that and come north. And when they did, we were in the way. So that. It was all quiet on the, the day of the 19th, but that evening I find myself on a, in a foxhole uh, on the road where the Germans are going to come up. And um, I, had, I had no idea. Uh, I didn't know where I was. Or didn't know north from south. Didn't know anything except... And the captain said, you two go down there and get that foxhole and um, keep us informed uh, if, if the Germans attack. But we had a telephone and a wire back to the command post. And about midnight, it was very, very quiet, myself and this other fellow, uh, we hear this strange noise, like a swishing sound. And it turned out to be uh, about a dozen German soldiers on bicycles. And uh, the swishing sound was made by them coming up this uh, wet road with a uh, little dusted uh, snow on it. And uh, we had a string of mines across the road in front of us to stop any vehicles. Well, when the bicycles got to those 
his mind, the, uh, these guys stopped and uh, began talking about what, what to do. Of course, they didn't know where they were either. <laughs> uh, so I picked up our telephone, and I gave the crank a little, little just a little twist, and the captain came on the phone, and he said, what do you have? We have about a dozen Germans at the road right in front of us. Well, he says, uh, I'll fire my 45, and you guys just get down as low as you can in the hole, and uh, we'll open up with this M16 half-track. It had four 50-caliber machine guns on it, and we'll sweep the road, and then when we stop that, I'll fire my 45 again. That'll be a signal for you to get out of the hole and come back to the command post as fast as you can. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's basically what happened. Uh, um, when they stopped firing the, those machine guns, the other guy and myself got out of the hole, and we ran back to, to the uh, command post. And, of course, on the way back, it didn't all go well. Uh, as I approached one of the howitzer positions, a guy took a shot at me. And uh, I was calling the password out, but it didn't seem to matter. So I used some other language, and, uh, and then he realized I was an American. <laughs> I guess stop firing. Anyway, he missed me. Okay, well, so. that's that's that's. that's <laughs> So anyway, that's uh, that. That was my first experience being shot at and uh, missed. John Shafter, I'm thinking that you know you're just this young young American kid. Here you are across the big blue ocean. You're in a foxhole. Yeah. Yeah, why? Why? Why did you do what? I mean, what? Why did you do this? Good question. I think uh, all of us had the attitude that it had to be done, and uh, we were going to take our chances. At uh, at that age, uh, I guess you think you're bulletproof. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I don't think anybody that I encountered was uh, worried about being killed. Uh, uh, it was happening, but. Uh, I guess you think it's never going to happen to you. Um, uh, I don't know. Okay, well, let's let's continue on. Uh, so you have gotten back to, uh, uh, was it the command where you were headed back to? You got back there. What happened after that? Yeah, well, we're, we're all uh, in position around this crossroads, you know, with a string of, uh, of foxholes. And um, we, were, we were armed with uh, three howitzers. Uh, there were uh, three anti-aircraft um, M16 half-tracks, which I just described having four 50-caliber machine guns on them. There was a scout car with a 37-millimeter little cannon on it. So, and that, it, and all the small arms is what we had, and uh, we had no uh, no means of resupply. So what we had uh, to defend with the ammunition, when the ammunition was gone, um, we were done for. But 
we held it for until the 22nd of December. And the night of the 23rd, as it got dark, the Germans uh, attacked it in force, and uh, they captured most of the guys that were there. Uh, a lot of them were wounded, and I, I think a few were, some were killed. Um, I was in a position where I could get away. I, myself and another guy, were in this little stone farmhouse and uh, trying to get warm um, when the when the wall came in on top of us. I'd say it was, uh, it was hit by an artillery shell, I guess. Anyway, we didn't wait to find out if it was, they were going to send another one. We went out the door, and it was about almost getting dark, and, and uh, there was a, about 12 cows in the road between us and the woods, uh, so we ducked between these cows and uh, started down across this field. And um, my buddy was hit. I, I, I still don't know what happened to him, but it was probably a mortar shell went off too close to him, and he went down. And um, when I went over to see what was going on with him, I had no idea what I was going to do. Um, he was too heavy for me to carry, and uh, I just happened to look down in the woods, and here comes a couple of American soldiers out of the woods. And I motioned to them to come up, and uh, which they did. It turned out they were from a patrol of uh, guys from the 82nd Airborne Division. And uh, between the three of us, we got our buddy out of danger. Um, he was pretty badly wounded. So uh, the, the 82nd guys put him on a Jeep and took him out. And he wound up in a hospital in England and never got back to us. And I never saw him again until 1986. Well, we had a reunion, a reunion in South Carolina, and he showed up. And that was the next time I saw him. Wow. And, of course, we developed a friendship over the, sure. over the years. Sure. He's still alive. Okay. Okay. Although he's still on, he's walking with a with a walker okay. now. Okay. Not as good a shape as I am. <laughs> well, you're doing you're doing an awesome awesome job, John Shafter. So, what happens after that then? Okay. Uh, now we have no more 589th Field Artillery Battalion. That's they're all gone. Uh, the few of us that got away from the crossroads before we were captured or killed or wounded uh, wound up in other units and um, I found the uh, 592nd Field Artillery Battalion um, the next day and um, uh, I didn't sign anything or anything but I was accepted into, into their unit and um, Wound up being a uh, observer and uh, worked in their what they called their far direction control center, 
which was uh, a job where I received um, target information from a, an observer and uh, transposed that into uh, uh, directions for the howitzers to fire. Uh, gave them the uh, coordinates and uh, directions from the observer. Okay. okay. So uh, I had it pretty easy. Okay. Hey, um, John, let's go to break. When we come back, let's continue on with your story. And uh, I think there's kind of an interesting personal story with the 592nd and a shower or bath or something. So let's go to go to break, and we'll be right back. This is Kim Munson with the AmeriChicks World okay. War II Project. Hey, welcome back to the AmeriChicks World War II Project. I'm Kim Munson. I'm talking with World War II veteran John Schaffner about his experience in the European theater in World War II. He uh, is, these are just fascinating stories. John, first of all, thank you. Thank you so much for granting this interview. Okay, I'm glad I can do it. Okay. And uh, so there was no longer any of the 589th because it uh, had taken significant no, losses. The, the few of us left were, you know, scattered around to uh, other outfits. So, you, so uh, I, had, I had it pretty easy compared to what I had gone through. And, uh, and so one of the things uh, was kind of interesting, could have been a tragedy, I guess, but it wasn't. Um, I was on an observation post with a, a lieutenant and a, a radio operator, and we were in the attic of a of, of a house where we could uh, oversee the area where we where we thought the Germans were. Okay, and um, we had a radio hook up to the back to the command post, and the lieutenant says. Uh, um, here, you, you take care of my weapon here, and I'll have to go outside and uh, take care of business. Okay, so uh, the weapon that he referred to was called a grease gun. It was officially an M3 submachine gun, and it looked like a grease gun. I had never seen one before, but I picked it up. And I said to the radio operator, I says, wonder how you operate this thing. It had a little crank on the side. So I, uh, that dumb and happy, I pulled the crank back. And when I let it go, it fired a bullet. Bang! <laughs> uh, fortunately, it went out the window. When the, uh, the lieutenant came back, I thought I was going to catch it. He says, what's going on up here? I, who fired that? I says, well, I did. Um, I thought we saw some Germans out there, and I just took a pot shot at him. He says, oh. <laughs> 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 that was the end of that. That was the end <laughs> of that. Tra- okay. happened there. Okay. <laughs> anyway, I, I learned then uh, to keep my hands off of something I didn't know what it was all about. Yeah, that, that's probably good advice, John Shafter, that's for sure. Now, the, the personal stories, um, I find this interesting about this uh, shower, this bath. Tell us a little bit about that. Oh, yeah. The, uh, uh, first, I'll, I'll tell you about, about the first bath I got after the, after the battle. Uh, the sergeant went around, he's looking us over, and he says, he says, you, 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 and you, you. And he picked out about a dozen of us. He says, get on the truck. 
uh, and uh, take along uh, a towel and a change of underwear. Uh, you're going to go get a shower. I said, okay. So we all piled in the truck, and we wound up in the town of Spa in Belgium. Mm-hmm. Spa is it's like a resort, little resort town, had had uh, mineral baths, you know, that sort of thing. So we lined up in front of this building, and uh, like everything else, you stand in line and you wait, and finally it becomes my turn. I'm first in line, and this uh, door opens. This woman comes, and she speaks French, and I don't speak anything but English. So she points at me and crooks her finger and says, come on. I follow her down the hall, and uh, it's a bathroom on both sides of the hall. They're just kind of sparse, just a, a big tub in the middle and I think one chair in the corner. So she... Uh, directs me into this bathroom and uh, goes over to the tub and turns the taps on and walks out. Well, I stand there and I, I watch the tub filling up and it's getting pretty high. I thought, well, she's not coming back. So I, I go over to turn the taps on. Well, first of all, I, I take off all my clothes to get in the tub and then go over to turn the taps off and she walked back in the building, in the room. And, uh, you know, that, that's the first time that a woman seen me bare naked uh, since my mother gave me a bath in the sink. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that was a, a new thing for me. But um, later on, when, I, when I, uh, our positions were kind of static, the engineers uh, would... Uh, put a pump in a stream or a river and pump the water out through a filter and into a uh, heater. And uh, they had constructed a, a web of pipes with shower heads. And uh, they would they would get the water moving and get it warmed up and start pumping it. And uh, we would get in there under these shower heads and soap up and clean off. And then you know, probably put our same old dirty clothes back on, but probably felt anyway, better. It was a way to get clean. I was always wondering, John Schaffner, as I've done these interviews, and you guys didn't get to shower very often. I'm kind of like wondering, could the Germans not smell you, guys? <laughs> <laughs> they knew us all right, I guess. But. Uh, uh, yeah, we were pretty cruddy. Yeah. Um, yeah. But um, it was day in and day out, and uh, you, know, you, you just um, live it one day at a time and not worry about it. Uh, well, let's move on just a little bit. Well, you don't get hurt. You're doing all right. That's for sure. Let's talk about, uh, and again, um, we're, I'm taking a look at these are your memoirs that you have on indianamilitary.org. This is John Schaffner. And okay. uh, certainly, I mean, there's all kinds of history here, but this is your personal story. So um, we've got, you know, maybe a couple more stories left. Where, what should we hit? Should we hit rebuilding the 106th or what, where would you like to go? Uh, yes, uh, that's, that's a good plan. Okay. Um, let's see, the, uh, the war was actually over on May the 8th. Um, prior to that, we had uh, we had been in action 
uh, up in Germany and uh, had not been uh, um, well had not been filled in where the casualties were incurred we, we were not up to strength that's what I mean to say so uh, we began to take in uh, replacements and uh, they pulled us out of uh, Germany and sent us back to uh, France to a place uh, that was became known as Camp Jones and there was uh, a, a, an area that was allocated to artillery firing to train the, uh, the artillery the, the howitzers crews so um, one day they sent the uh, the unit out to to fire the howitzers at, on this range, and um, for whatever reason I didn't go. Uh, I don't know why, but anyway, I was still in camp, and first sergeant said uh, to me to go over to the motor pool and uh, get a truck and a driver, and then go out to the uh, the, the German POW camp, which was not far. And get a truckload of German prisoners and uh, take them out to the uh, firing range. The commander out there wants them to uh, do some menial tests, uh, dig a latrine trench and garbage pit and what have you. So he gave me a little piece of paper with a uh, sketch on it about uh, showing the roads to take. And uh, I was not familiar with the area at all. And the driver, I gave the driver the, the uh, piece of paper, and I said, you know where this is? He says, oh, yeah, I know where it is. He says, okay, let's, let's go. Um, we went to the motor, to the POW pen and checked out a, about a dozen German prisoners and put them in the back of the truck, and we started on down the road. And uh, we get to a place where there's a little road turning off, and the driver says, I think this is it. So we start up the road, and it was not a paved road. It was just more of a farm road or a trail. And uh, we go through this little shot-up village. It's just wreckage. There's a stone wall around the, the edge of the road where it made a curve. And uh, we proceed on up through the woods, and finally I hear some artillery shells. Boom, boom. I said, well, we're getting close. And we went a little bit further, and then there was four shells exploded right out in front of us about a 200 yards away. Blam, 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 blowing the trees down. I said, hey, we're, we found the range, but we're at the wrong end. Oh, oh my <laughs> gosh. And uh, the 
driver put the truck back in, reversed it back off, and, and uh, wheels turned, but we didn't move. I got out, and we found out that all ten wheels of that truck were off the ground. We were sitting on stones. So uh, I motioned to the Germans, you know, come on, get off. And uh, Bob, using sign language, uh, had them pile the stones up underneath the wheels. And uh, we were able to back off. So everybody got back in the truck. I said, let's, let's go on back. And uh, we went back to the POW pen, checked in the prisoners, went back to the motor pool, checked in the truck and the driver. I went back to the battery position, and I said to the sergeant, mission accomplished, Sarge. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that was the last I heard of that little episode. <laughs> oh, my gosh, John. That never is, missed us. That is that's quite a story. So we probably have time for one more story. Uh, occupation of Germany, where do you want to go with the next story? Oh, well, how about... Uh, Yes, we did occupation in Germany. Um, we were uh, notified uh, one day that we were going to uh, participate in a an operation, and it had a name, but I can't think of it right now. But um, what we were going to do was to uh, get up in the middle of the night, and about two or three in the morning, we were going to. Uh, Occupy this village where the Germans had moved back in. But uh, the mission was to um, search for and confiscate any Nazi um, materials of any kind. So uh, that's what we did. Everybody piled in the trucks and we went into this little village, one too many houses. Um, here it is middle of the night, we bang on doors and we run all the civilians out into the street and we invade their houses and we pull out dresser drawers and open closets and look in all the nooks and crannies looking for weapons or any Nazi material. And uh, that was kind of interesting. Um, it was a lot like what the Nazis did but uh, not near as severe. We didn't hurt anybody, and we didn't we didn't uh, arrest anybody. But we did find uh, medals and uh, uh, armbands, uh, like you see on TV, mm-hmm. and uh, small things like that. Didn't, as far as I know, we didn't find any weapons. And that was interesting. And were the, were I, the people that you pulled out of their homes, how did they react to all this? Uh, they were dumbfounded. Okay. They didn't know what was going on. Okay. And we didn't have a common language, so uh, we couldn't tell them. But uh, nobody, got, uh, nobody got angry or uh, gave us a hard time. Um, I think they just went along with it. Okay. Um, it was part amazing. of war then. But you didn't amazing. hurt anybody. You didn't take their stuff or anything like that. You just was searching, right? No, no. Yeah. And I, I walked out. Uh, I'm looking at it now. 
Um, I have a medal that was awarded to uh, the, the German women for having children for the Third Reich. It's called the Deutsche Mutter. And it was awarded uh, in a gold finish for, to a woman who had eight, that's eight children for the Third Reich. It was in silver for one that had six children and in bronze for one who had four. And it's uh, rather attractive. It's engraved on the back with A. Hitler. Uh, and uh, that's what they were doing. Wow. Boy, now that's the first time I've heard that. But, uh, yeah, I now remember those stories of encouraging. Yeah, so I have that and I have an armband. You know, like uh, the ones they wore around the uh, upper arm. Right, right. Uh, with the Nazi uh, swastika on it. So, well, and John. I have a, oh, an iron cross, which is a German medal, which was given for just about anything in various uh, various values. Okay. Uh, well, John. It was, the one I have is a, actually a replica. Um, while there on, a, on one of my visits, um, uh, I was escorted around by a Belgian fellow, um, and we were in this town where they were having a, a like I call it a yard sale of all military memorabilia, mm-hmm. and you could buy anything from from a bullet to a two and a half ton truck. It was one of those. Anyway, this one fellow had a display of medals. And um, I was looking at this one, uh, our cross, and this fellow Henry said, um, uh, do you have one of those? I says, no, I don't. He says, I'll give you one. And uh, when we got back to his house, he, he uh, gave me this iron, iron cross medal. And he said that uh, his wife doesn't like having that stuff hang around because during the Nazi occupation, um, her family lost about nine people that went to concentration camps and never came back. Wow. So she had a little sympathy for the Germans. Got it. So, John Schaffner, we are out of time. This has been just fascinating. Uh, love this interview for the World War II Project. Thank you so much, John Schaffner. That is for sure, and we need to know our history. So World War II veteran John Schaffner, thank you so much. This is Kim Munson with the Americhick signing off. God bless you, and God bless America. Join us next time for the World War II Project and your host, the Americhick, Kim Munson. Until then, keep saluting the greatest generation.